was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, Broadway star Stephen Skybell. Stephen Skybell just completed a highly successful run as Tevia in the Yiddish language Fiddler on the Roof, and he's also appeared on Broadway in Ah Wilderness, Love, Valor, Compassion, The Full Monty, Wicked, Pow Joey, Cafe Crown, and the 2015 revival of Fiddler on the Roof. His other stage roles include parts in Trouble in Mind, Candida, Camelot, and Long Day's Journey into Night. He is also a veteran Shakespearean actor who has appeared in Hamlet, Twelfth Night, King Lear, Titus Andronicus, Troilus and Cressida, Much Ado About Nothing, and Love's Labor's Lost internationally. So now, without further ado, here's Stephen Skybell. So I would love to um to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in theater? Well, I grew up in a small Texas town, Lubbock, Texas, and there was a children's theater there, a community theater, Lubbock Theater Center and Lubbock Children's Theater. So my older brother got involved with the children's theater. And when I was around 10, I also wanted to get involved. And so I started doing plays with the children's theater and and immediately took to it, loved it, and really in some ways never looked back. I I I at a very at that early age knew that it was that theater was something I wanted to do. And so um, just slowly pursued it for the rest of my life. Uh, I am fond of telling people that some of the things that drew me to it when I was 10 years old are still the things that, you know, are at play today, which is it's, it's enjoyable. It's fun. There's play, there's storytelling. There's the, the joy of, um, playing a different character, all of that, which was, I felt as a kid, I still, I feel that's part of what it is today. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And were your uh, parents or people around you sort of supportive of your interests? Or- they were, yes, everybody was, you know, um, I mean, I, I went on then to National Music Camp Interlock in Michigan, where I studied theater and music very seriously. And at that point, my parents one summer came up and, you know, when I was in high school, met with some of the teachers that I had there just to double check and make sure that it, that theater and performing might be something that I could truly pursue. But they um, I always was support felt support from my family, including my grandfather, who lived in the town with us who was from uh, originally from a small uh, town in northeast Poland. Um, although he insisted all of his sons go into the medical profession and he wanted my b- older brother to go into the medical profession, he gave me his blessing to uh-huh. go into performing. So I felt uh, I felt supported and lucky that I didn't have to um 
have pushback from my family in that regard. Oh, yeah. And how did the move to New York finally happen? And did you always know that you wanted to go there? Or I did. I, I Again, it's like... Um, Growing up Jewish in a small Texas town, there was obviously, and my mother's side of the family was from Chicago, so it's there was big city in my family, but not really New York. But I also knew at an early age that if you wanted to pursue the theater, New York is where one wants to go. And so um, when I began to look at colleges that I might want to go to, I I looked at colleges in the Northeast and thankfully ended up going to, I went to Yale undergrad and then I continued at Yale drama school. And so um, that was very, a very simple move from New Haven to New York when it was time to make that transition. Oh yeah. Yeah. And when you were starting out auditioning, how did you find your sort of niche in terms of the type of roles that you would be going up for? And well, you know, that's a, a, I don't know that I really ever found my niche until I found uh, Yiddish Fiddler. <clears throat> that is to say, um, you know, uh, it's a discussion that is very pertinent today that growing up and uh, as a young performer uh, pursuing the career, I was identified as ethnic, perhaps. And so, um, which so the first film that I ever thankfully got to do was a Arthur Miller screenplay. It was Arthur Miller's last screenplay, but in it I called Everybody Wins, and in it I played a young um, Catholic priest. And you know, so there was at that time I felt that my ethnicity could go different ways, and I also felt that I wasn't a typical. Uh, juvenile, you know, a, a young leading man in training. There was always a part of me that was interested in the character actor and the, the I don't know, comic sidekick seemed like an aspect that was was my was what I was cast as early on. Um, but hand in hand with that, I pursued Shakespeare, and I really feel like I got a lot of my. Um, in-depth theatrical training playing all sorts of roles in Shakespeare and and truly it when finally I mean and this when finally Tevye came around it really felt like a merging of all of all things for me in that it was my ethnicity <clears throat> it was music theater so I enjoy singing I always sang and then it also a role like Tevya draws upon the greatest acting challenges that um, an actor can be faced with, including some of the greatest Shakespearean roles. So in that regard, Tevya has really become for me um, the realization of all all I dreamed of doing and <clears throat> all that I feel I'm capable of. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, in, and so uh, I really feel only now, having played Tevye now and for 40 plus years in Yiddish, I really feel that I could be happy playing Tevye for a very long time, but also playing Jewish uh, uh, is something that 
um, delights me no end. And I feel like it draws upon so many aspects of my personality that if I, if I continue to play non-Jewish roles, it's what I've learned playing such a, a character so close to my own DNA, that that's a real lesson to know that you want to have that closeness, even if the character feels initially very, very remote to you. So, I mean, that's, but that is early on, I just auditioned for things and got cast in things and just sort of kept stumbling along, um, thankfully, um, pursuing my career. Right. And what do you think specifically are the challenges of playing Tevia that are similar to the challenges of acting in a Shakespeare play? Well, um, on a simple level, length, it's it's a very long role, <laughs> just like a great Shakespearean role. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it's it's a three hour musical, which is um, it's a, so it's just. I remember when I was coaching with the Yiddish coaches initially, I kept turning the page. Uh, and certainly for act one, it's like he's still talking. He hasn't left the stage. And for act one, it's a very intense time on stage. There's very little downtime for almost two hours. And so that's that is similar to a Shakespeare role. Um, say a great, you know, a Hamlet or a Richard II. Um, similarly, the immensity of emotion that Tevye goes through from pure delight to deepest pathos, um, and sometimes on a dime, um, is akin to what Shakespeare also requires of, of his characters. Um, a real detailed and ever-shifting um, emotional reality. Um, I liken that to Shakespeare. And then the third component for me with the Yiddish fiddler is that just as Shakespeare's English can be felt as slightly foreign to the modern ear, and we have to work very hard in Shakespeare to make, make it sound and feel true, communicative, and lived, that's the same challenge with the Yiddish is that I want to embody it and breathe it so that and 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 authentically speak it so that no one will say, wait, what's he saying? Or he doesn't sound like he knows what he's saying. All that, which I know from Shakespeare, served me very well for the Yiddish fiddler. Right. And when you are going through such a, as you're saying, sort of an exhausting emotional journey every night, how do you manage yeah. to sort of separate that from your personal life and what you sort of take home with you and all of that? Well, I mean, that's the, it's an interesting question because the body in some ways doesn't, if, if I feel like if I'm truly in the moment, my body can't really determine what's real and what's play. So some of the emotional toll feels very real, but it's also very cathartic. You know, it's it. So let's say it's like having a good cry. So um, once you do that, you're able to move on. And so even though in the moment it feels very intense, once the show is over, it's become easier and easier for me to breathe it off and say, I have another chance tomorrow or later in the evening show. So for me, 
residual residual hang on is not so much emotional as it is physical that the body just takes a a toll experiencing it so it's important for me to to keep myself limbered and warm and massage so that things don't get creaky or stuck but um it's it's more of a physical toll that needs to be um addressed as opposed to the emotional toll which is is a delight for an actor to get to experience it discharge it and then refill it for the next time right yeah and so in finding your interpretation of the role of Tevya, what have you taken or not taken from actors who've done it before? Of course, you played Laser Wolf with Danny Burstein, and then there's Cyril Mostel. And... Right, right. I mean, it's a very good question. And again, it does sort of be a bit of a companion question to, again, to Shakespeare in that so many great actors take on Shakespearean roles and, and I see them or you see films of them and then... I do think the best actors are a little bit like thieving magpies. And so you steal from whatever you can that makes sense to you and seems to be um, something that you would like to incorporate. So um, I I steal. I stole from Danny and I stole from uh, Katrina Lenk does a YouTube version of If I Were a Rich Man. And there were things about her, her interpretation of that that really ignited some of my imagination and so um I took some from her that is to say the the bitty bitty bums that that she truly made it into a, a laugh a non-verbal laugh and I and I and that made sense to me and I really wanted to incorporate that notion that Tevye initially goes off text in that song because he's so delighted by his own imaginative forces to try and imagine what it would be to be so rich um you know the there are certainly things about the zero mustel recording that you can't get it out of your ear because it's so indelibly impressed upon our our consciousness uh, but again i will say the yiddish for me was a bit of a blessing because it it i could bypass um certain comparisons because i'm speaking a different language so there's no expectation that it's going to sound exactly the way zero mostel did it um and and the the truth is is that i i mean i've heard from people that my my rendition of rich man is is unlike what they have seen before and that always surprises me because when i when i am doing anything in the production I'm trying to fulfill it as honestly and truthfully and completely as I can, as I imagine Zero Mostel did as well. So in that regard, I don't think my rich man is is so completely far afield from anyone else's. I'm just trying to do rich man the way it is on the page. But um, again, I, I mean, I know that as actors, and I do believe this, seven actors can do the same song or the same Shakespeare monologue and it's going to be different because we as artists are uniquely different. So um, so in that regard, I'm not afraid to steal, but I'm also trusting that um, I, I, won't, I won't come off as a carbon copy because it's filtering through myself. Oh, yes. And you certainly don't. It's, it's wonderful and original. And Thank you. 
And so on the sort of theme of taking from great actors and all of that, you made your Broadway debut in All Wilderness alongside Colleen Dewhurst and Jason Robards. And yes, indeed. And what was it like to be working with those great actors? And well, I mean, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by you because uh, you know I do. Um, I teach. I I have taught Shakespeare at, at Yale, Juilliard, NYU, Fordham, and Harvard, and. I don't know how old you are, but um, I would say that people of your generation don't seem to know those names as as you just showed to me. You do know those names because um, because a certain generation is not able to really grab those performers who were so they were titans of the stage. They also did great film roles, Colleen Dewhurst and Jason Robards Jr. Um, I mean, again, I will. Uh, it was unbelievable to be in the rehearsal room with the two of them and others. It, it, George Hearn was in Our Wilderness and um, Louise Wilson. And um, I, I learned a great deal from them um, about acting, but also about leading a company and what it is to sort of gather the groups to get the group together in an in a unified endeavor, a theatrical endeavor. Um, but that was, of course, my I did that at my final year at Yale School of Drama. We did All Wilderness. And I also it was All Wilderness and Long Day's Journey and Tonight in repertory. And I was an understudy. I was Campbell Scott's understudy in Long Day's Journey and Tonight. But the opportunity to be working on Eugene O'Neill, to be working with um, these two incredible directors, Jose Quintero and Arvin Brown, and these titans of the American stage and titans of Eugene O'Neill theatrically um, was such a marvelous learning experience. And then the, the cherry on the top was that the show moved to Broadway. So I graduated from drama school and then a week later was making my Broadway debut with these I'll call them yet one more time, Titans. Um, it just was a dream come true for a young actor. Oh, yeah. And what do you like about the repertory sort of format? I know you've done Yale rep and American rep. And... Yeah, I mean, I love it. I I, I did love it. I, um, uh, when I was at Yale rep, it really was no longer repertory. Um, they would do a play and then another play and another play. But I was three years at the American Repertory Theater under the artistic directorship of Robert Brustein, who was a, a huge mentor, an idol of mine, an idol of mine before I finally, thankfully, got to work with him. I, again, just as a digression, I had two two idols as I was growing up in Lubbock, Texas, who I dreamed of somehow associating myself with and that was Robert Brustein who who was the head of the Yale School of Drama when I was wanting to go to drama school he then left Yale School of Drama to go to Harvard and ART I I imaginatively followed him there and and um then the other person was Joseph Papp and so I I thankfully got to work with both of them in my young career but I will say that being part of the repertory company of American Repertory Theater and uh, Brustein asked me to join the company and to be one of the core company members. So for three years, and it was a big decision when I ultimately did choose to not stay with the company. I, I did leave after three years, but those three years were in some ways, retrospectively, such a glorious time because it was 
a group of actors performing one play at night, rehearsing the next play in the afternoon, perform, and then performing one play, and then the next day another play. It was, again, after drama school, it felt like the apprenticeship or the finishing program to really um, solidify what it is to act on the stage and and continually work you know that it wasn't about searching for the next gig it was it was really um a, a challenge to just continually probe your own imagination when you're doing yet another play starting yet another play and you want to say i don't want to do what i did before i don't want to rely on what i think i know i can do i want to be pushed to do even more it really was such a great developmental opportunity for me and yeah. what, what did make you ultimately decide to leave the well it's that i it, it's that i i was still in my late 20s at that time and i i just i i had literally um graduated from drama school went to new york and then in short order maybe six months, seven months later, was cast in my first play at ART. So I felt I hadn't really experienced New York and pursuing a career that's more New York-based. And I did see actors up at ART who had devoted their lives to the company, elder actors who had, you know, followed Brewstein from New Haven to Cambridge. And while, the, while that is... A wonderful thing I just felt I had more things I wanted to pursue before that uh, sadly I don't think even now at ART there's a there's no longer a core company of actors who are the resident company so I think that is done with in some ways with the American regional theater system there are no more if I'm I'm not I may be wrong but certainly I don't think if I put it in my mind that I'll go to New York and one day I'll return as a company member to ART, I don't think that uh, possibility exists anymore, but I still stand by my decision, which was, I felt it was, I had more I wanted to explore beyond what American Repertory Theater had. Yeah. And what was it like to to collaborate with Joseph Papp, as you were mentioning, another Titan? Well, again, it, it, he was uh, he was only the producer on this play. So it was one of the last plays that he produced with the public theater. Um, but it was um, it was a play called Cafe Crown, which um, is about the a fictional account of the Cafe Royale, which was the Sardis of the Yiddish theater on Second Avenue. And so interestingly enough that now at this point in my career, I'm I'm doing the Yiddish Tevya. My one of the first things I did off Broadway was a play about the Yiddish theater. And it starred Ann Jackson and Eli Wallach and a host of Yiddish performers, famous luminaries of the Yiddish stage. And um and in, in that regard, it was a love letter to the Yiddish theater. And I think it it, it was very important that it, Pap's heart was also in it, that it, as he may have felt, he was reaching a certain end of his producing life. 
that he chose to do this play at the public was meaningful, I think, to him and was obviously very meaningful to me. And um, that is where I began to understand that there was a wealth of Yiddish theater and song that that was the height of it was sort of the birth of Broadway truly was the Yiddish theater on the Lower East Side that then moved uptown. But um, I love I loved doing it. And um, and I, and and the honor to sort of work at the public theater and work under his authority was uh, again a, a dream come true. And with that being said, what do you think was the reason why the play wasn't able to be quite as successful during its Broadway transfer? Cafe Crown. Cafe Crown. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very it's a very good question. Um, I mean, just just to say, the the O'Neills that I did that were my Broadway debut, they also were not so successful. They only ran for about six weeks, I believe, and that was understandable because um, I think repertory on Broadway is a hard sell because people are be are going to pick and choose. I won't go to both. I'll go to the 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 heavies doing the heavy drama so that did not survive for very long and why did cafe crown not survive i'm i i actually have never given that thought you know it's it's a bit i don't know you know maybe it maybe it was too jewish back in the day that that it wasn't main mainstream fair it certainly was funny but it was um you know it was an older play that was being revived so in that regard it was well made and may have seemed a little old-fashioned in in its way um but certainly that's the that's the big guess of broadway is what what sticks and what doesn't quite catch fire you know and i really never gave it much thought except it seemed like that's just the way of the world that sometimes people clamor for it and and sometimes they don't and maybe it was that with joseph papp and martin charnin who directed us who had also directed annie um they may have against their better judgment wanted to put it on broadway um more than the numbers were pointing to that i don't really know or remember but um it certainly was exciting that here was yet another play that I was doing that was transferring to Broadway but um yeah I it just didn't seem to catch the imagination right and is there any show that you've been part of off Broadway or out of New York that you especially feel should have transferred to Broadway or mm, I can't think of one off the top of my head you know um, no, I, I mean, not particularly, you know, and the thing is, is that Broadway, Broadway now, and even as I was growing up in the profession, it's, it's a, it's tricky because not everything can transfer to Broadway, you know, like for, even if you look at our Yiddish fiddler, it, it did quote unquote, catch fire downtown. And we kept extending and extending and extending. And there seemed to be the desire for people to see it. Well, when it came to the opportunity to move it, no one, especially Joel Gray, the director, wanted to move it to Broadway because it just, 
it's an intimate show and to sit in a Broadway house requires that it become large, a slightly larger. And um, because it's so pared down, it, it wouldn't necessarily fit well in a Broadway house. And so, and that's become truer and truer about Broadway that, I mean, no disrespect, but if you're going to pay the prices that Broadway is asking you to pay, you want spectacle, you want, you know, great. You want more than, I mean, you want a lot. And sometimes, um, so I think it was smart for the Yiddish fiddler that they they weren't thinking, well, we'll move to Broadway and we'll explode the show and make it more because it's a simple tale. It's great entertainment. It is Fiddler on the Roof. But it has certain aspects of it that by trying to, and it's a huge company. So for Broadway, it just would have multiplied the expense of it. Um, you know, Broadway is an expensive venture. And so it's not that as I look back, I don't think I've done obviously things in re the regional theater and off Broadway that I've been immensely proud of, but I've never really thought, oh, that should that's Broadway fair and it needs to go to Broadway. That's not really I don't I can't think of an ex example for that. And you've worked with uh, so many great directors from Joel Grace, you were mentioning to Julie Taymor and, and others. And what do you yeah. think makes a great director and what do you look for in well, the, these are all great questions, Charles. Um, um, what I look for in a great director is obviously first and foremost, someone who I can communicate with. You know, some directors are a little better about talking to the actor. The thing about Joel Gray, I'll say, and I've said it before, he's obviously such um an exemplary performer. We know him as a performer, but the real surprise, and, it, the, and the Yiddish Fiddler was the second opportunity I had to work with him as a director. He, he's an exceptional director. And I think on a lot of levels, but one of his greatest strengths is that he understands from him, his own experience, the actor's plight and the challenges of what it is to perform to rehearse to be in a rehearsal room and so he is very excellent in speaking in doing actor speak to actors he know for me especially i feel like he can speak to me in a way that i absolutely understand what he's looking for what the moment can be and that's exceptional um and so you want that from every director, it, whatever that may be. It's not that they all have to speak like Joel Gray speaks, but as long as they are able to direct, I mean, that's the thing I love about the word director, because you don't necessarily as an actor want to be told what to do. This is what you do to to direct the your own impulse uh, that if the director sees that impulse and says what if you go this way with it or what if you go left and then right with it so i mean um i've worked i have worked with a, a, a lot of luminary directors all in all sorts of different um types of theatrical events um 
and some of them, uh, like for instance, I at ART, I had the good fortune of working with Robert Wilson, who is, you know, a unique, specific theatrical visionary. And it's not necessarily that he had the same skill sets as Joel Gray in terms of helping you dig deep into a character, but his vision is so specific and so unique that wanting to fulfill that vision, collaborate with him in that vision is also delightful, you know? So I also, as an actor, we don't, I don't think we want the same kind of direction all the time, but as long as it feels um, sensible, makes meaning and also can be challenging uh, i i'm 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 game for the ride you know yeah and yeah. i would love to ask more specifically about julie Taymor, who i mentioned sure. in the production of titus andronicus that you yeah yeah well i mean she's another visionary you know i uh, um and she's i mean again this these are some of these people it was years ago that i worked with them you know um and I I mean, and I worked with her also at ART because when we were at ART, she had done with Andre Serban a production of, what was it called? The Goldoni play. It toured a great deal. ART toured it all over the world. We went to Japan with it. And so she was, I worked with her there first. And then I worked with her uh, in New York on Titus Andronicus before she made the movie of Titus Andronicus. And she, you know, I'm not also afraid of of directors who are very demanding. I would say that Julie Taymor is is relentless in her um, in the pursuit of of her vision, and sometimes with um, projects, I've had this happen countless times. The quality of the play, especially a Shakespeare play, can become part of the experience and Titus Andronicus is such a violent play and has such horror in it that my recollection of the experience is a little dark you know it was it's not always hunky-dory to do to do things and to tell right. some of these stories and that, that was a challenging that was a challenging uh performance a rehearsal process uh working on Titus because it's it's such a dark awful play yeah and of the many Shakespearean roles that you've taken on in in various yeah. places was there one that you found was especially hard to sort of tap into and uh um Not that I can remember. I mean, I truly not that I can remember. Uh, uh, the the thing I love about Shakespeare is that I really feel uh, Shakespeare. Also, I know I just feel in my heart loved actors, and so he loved. I get the feeling his message was: you can do anything. You actor can play anything. I mean that all the world's a stage, and we all play roles. And so he, I think he really believed in the transformative art of acting. And so I'll only say that I I, I played Hamlet, and I loved playing Hamlet. But I felt I also played Richard II in New York City, and I really. Um, 
I really, really connected with the role of Richard II in some ways more than with Hamlet. Um, there just was, there's something about that role that really spoke to me. And so again, akin to Tevya, and there's no rhyme or reason, true. I, I mean, some, I mean, I can point to Tevya and say, well, he's Jewish, I'm Jewish, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But there's no real rhyme or reason why Hamlet, Hamlet, didn't feel like as internally resonant to me as Richard II did. And I can't tell you why. I mean, maybe if I gave it more thought, I could, but um, that's just, again, I mean, that's just the way it goes. I mean, we we all have personal response to characters and stories and sometimes it's subconscious and unconscious. Um, but that's all I'll say about that is that not that there was a Shakespeare character that that felt difficult to 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 get but um certainly some of them feel so easy to embrace yeah yeah and so during this time in the 1990s when you were doing I would say mostly Shakespeare or a lot of Shakespeare did you find that it gave you a different approach to the non-Shakespeare roles you did like love valor compassion or things like yeah. that yeah I mean again uh, I mean I love talking Shakespeare I love Shakespeare and a thing I say to my students over and over again is that Shakespeare, Shakespeare's texts are the gold standard of what of, of what a script can give you. They so I mean, in terms of ex the character's expression, in terms of the complexity of of moment and the drama of scenes he he just finds he can crack open what's the dramatic moment so i have felt in my life that the more you the more i rub up against shakespeare i'm going to be better able to address any text the thing i say again and again though is that not every text is going to give you what shakespeare affords you you know so it, so, for instance, in television, the the writing in television is not always the primary focus of what it's about, you know. So if you ask a television screenwriter, hey, you said you said this in this scene. Um, why that word? And they'll I, I once had this conversation. I said, why that word? And they're like, oh, you can change it. What you want to change it? Just change it. You know, it's like, well, no, I actually wanted to know what's the what is the thinking behind that word choice? You know, which we're as like with Shakespeare, everything is everything is useful for examination, where sometimes a, t a modern text will let you down in a way, you know, um, but the more the more Shakespeare I did, the more I'm able to apply his notions of how text can operate and what drama can be. I can put that in any scene, even if it's quote unquote, I don't want to use the word inferior, but less less developed than a Shakespeare text. Um, we can still apply all the depth that we learn from Shakespeare to any text. You know, it's our imagination jumping off point. So, so for love, valor, I mean, love, valor, compassion, 
is a fantastic script in in its own right, Terence McNally. So, uh, and that's that is truly the delight is whether it's Shakespeare or a modern play, as long as it's it wants to be. I'm looking for text that is vital, as opposed to, uh, or not. I mean, truly not. You know, I mean. Uh, I'm thinking now about Chekhov, you know, or plays like Chekhov, where the text can be quite simple, understated, but as long as the life beneath it is deep, then that's all I as an actor am looking for. Sometimes the text can really galvanize you, and sometimes it's just the tip of the iceberg that may be pointing to things much deeper. <laughs> What do you like about taking on Shakespearean roles specifically in the park venue and, and outside? And do you think that brings a different feel to it? Or yeah, it uh, yes, you know, and I I just as a bit of a biographical digression. I mean, the height of my Shakespeare career for me was I was chosen to help inaugurate Shakespeare's Globe in London, and um, one of two Americans that were initially in 1997 we presented an all-male henry v to open the globe mark rylance played henry v and richard olivier directed it the son of Lawrence olivier and and they they wanted americans to be part of that initial company because sam wanamaker who was an american was the spearhead of the of the of the resurgence and building of the new Shakespeare's Globe. So they wanted an American presence. So two men were chosen initially. And then when they, in the later in the season, we did a mixed sex production, two late American ladies also joined us. Um, and the reason why I bring it up is that working in a replica of Shakespeare's Globe made it was a was a very eye-opening experience to really see how these Shakespearean plays operate in the architecture that Shakespeare knew the play would be done. And I did say to myself, after my time there at the Globe, I will never perform Shakespeare in the dark, in a darkened theater again, and I will not want to perform him at the Delacorte with amplification. I, I just really was so excited by the experience of what the globe, the physical globe offered the Shakespeare play. Of course, I've, I've come to eat those words and you, and I'm delighted to still be doing Shakespeare in darkened theaters and with amplification, but, you know, we're um, doing it at the globe Shakespeare at the Globe was a unique, um, in some ways, life-changing experience for me and Shakespeare. Um, however, the Delacorte, Shakespeare in the Park, as, as the crowning achievement of Joseph Papp, which is bring Shakespeare to the people for free so that anyone can come and hear a Shakespeare play, that to me is all was always so exciting to perform at the Delacorte and to know that people were able to 
see it for free and experience, you know, people from all walks of New York City life could stumble upon a play and, and see it. That's, that is also, I feel, part of what Shakespeare is all about, which is he appeals to, he appeals to the lawyers and he appeals to the common, the, the groundlings who paid a penny and just wanted to be kind of excited by a show. So, um, I mean, I, I've loved working at the Delacorte over the years. And I, I've, wor I've worked a great deal with Karen Coonrod, Shakespearean director, and we've done a lot of interesting plays since the Globe in the dark, in theaters, you know, so um, I, I love it all, truly. And how much do you believe that Shakespeare should be reimagined or do you think that it should stay faithful to the original text or how much do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, it's a very hot topic right now. And, you know, Shakespeare's a bit of a hot topic in, in this woke moment of trying to find all sorts of voices, even from Shakespeare's time. You know, um, I, I, um, you know, I, I am, I, I love anything that is adapted but i mean that's not to say it's not that i love anything adapted i believe in adaptation you know so for instance uh um west side story an adaptation of romeo and juliet why not you know shakespeare did the same thing shakespeare only had maybe two original plots that he devised everything else was a reworked plot that had already been written. So that's where I also get my desire to uh, honor the, the stealing from others because Shakespeare stole from others in terms of plot lines. Um, so West Side Story, yes. Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet Ballet, yes. Um, I, even, I even love Taylor Swift's song about Romeo and Juliet and and it's kind of flip at the end which is sort of like the rent flip to La Boheme that that she doesn't die at the end of rent although she does die in La Boheme similarly the kids in Taylor Swift's song are going to get together they're not going to die um I love all of that I believe in all of that where I do draw the line for myself is that I'm not so interested in translating Shakespeare or saying we need to make it more accessible to modern ears that to me is that's death to Shakespeare's plays you know um and I'm not interested in that at all, truly. Uh, I mean, just just call it a an adaptation of it, and don't say you're translating it or reworking it. Or, I mean, that's again. I know I'm a cranky old man when it comes to that, but that is that's my belief. And uh, and the and the and because I've also spent years of my life taking the the thorny language of Shakespeare and making it accessible and making it live. That's the, the actor's challenge. So to say like, Oh, we don't need that. Let's fix that. Let's, let's adapt that. I mean, I'm not interested. Yeah. And so I would love to ask you about actually a non Shakespeare project that you did on screen, which was the cradle will rock. And what's yeah. your sort of research process like for, for this role and well, again, I, uh, I, I, I love Brecht as uh, Brecht, you know, like I have a handful of playwrights and I do feel like in some ways they all 
they all go back to Shakespeare, you know, that um, I love Chekhov and Chekhov loves Shakespeare and Brecht's kind of, um, Brecht feels Shakespearean in that it's highly political. He was highly political, highly entertaining, and wasn't afraid of incorporating music into his plays. So um, so I, I knew a lot about Brecht before I played the ghost of Bertolt Brecht in The Cradle Will Rock. Um, so, I mean, I researched as much as I could, gathered a lot of images in terms of what the guy will look like. The thing that's that I love to tell about Cradle Will Rock, the Cradle Will Rock, is that it was meant to be, Brecht was meant to be like, I don't know, like when Tim Robbins envisioned the idea of Blitzstein's dead wife and Bertolt Brecht, who are sort of these ghosts that are, are kind of accompany him it was only like one scene or and like a day of shooting it, so it wasn't going to be a lot of time and he kept he kept adding ideas about where these two could come in so that was delightful and so what was meant to be so um I did my research for what was meant to be maybe like this one day of filming but then it ended up being six weeks of filming and so and and he peppered us throughout much more throughout the film than had initially been envisioned and so that was a delight but it's i i didn't necessarily feel like oh i need to know more about brecht now now that i have more screen time but i did what i did the research i needed to do but also had again had a certain flight of fancy about brecht because um it's it's in blitzstein's imagination as opposed to this is the real brecht you know in the real historical moment so um there was a certain freedom with that. So my my research was more about a jumping off point imaginatively as opposed to, oh, I know this is how he held a cigar or anything like that, you know. Right. And so what made you decide around this point in your career, or if you feel it was a conscious decision to do more work in the musical theater as opposed to? No, it wasn't a decision. Um, um you know, again, it's just that I've never I've never considered myself a musical theater performer, truly. I mean, I love performing. I love singing, but I, I never was I never was seen for some of those typical musicals. And and in that regard, Tevye is a perfect role for me because I mean, it's a demanding role. It's and it, it, a demanding singing role, too. Um, but it it's not something that feels impossible to me some of the some of the musical theater roles i can't even i couldn't even a try um but what i but I, what i will tell you is that singing tevya in yiddish has been has been an awakening for me and in the pandemic i have been working very closely with zalman Mlotek, and we have been working on yiddish songs singing yiddish songs and i've been i've been asked to come and sing evenings of yiddish fiddler and yiddish song and whereas maybe 20 years ago that would have been like no interest to me like why i don't I, that's not in my wheelhouse and now i feel so drawn to do it and i feel prepared to do it, confident to do it. I want to do it and I love doing it. Um, so that is a shift that I will tell you it's the Yiddish that opened that up for me um, because, I, because I feel like singing a song in Yiddish 
is it's a beautiful let's say it's a beautiful song beautiful melody but the act of singing it in yiddish is in some ways a a, a desire to give life to something that could be lost might have almost been lost just the yiddish language and some of these songs go to the heart of of what it is to be a jew and to be i mean some of these songs in yiddish are just incredible incredibly painful uh, and incredibly reflective of of the plight of the jewish person throughout history so uh, so while i love i love the medium of song they're not about just hear my voice, hear my singing voice. It's hear the hear the message, hear the communication, and hear this language. Um, so now I find I do finally feel like singing is something I I would want I want to do, feel drawn to do, and 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 feel capable of doing. And so with a show like Fiddler in Yiddish or another musical you did, Wicked, I'd be curious to know, what is it like to stay in a show for such a long run? And how do you sort of keep it yeah. fresh while, while having done it? Yeah, well, it's, um, that is a challenge. I mean, again, that's a, a beautiful, lucky, specific challenge for an actor to be like, well, how do you keep it fresh after two years? You know, yeah. uh, I did Dr. Dilliman for three years total. And there is a, there is a, a skill set that goes along with that because it everything goes to a different part of the brain. Short term memory then shifts to long term memory, and I've I've seen examples say in in Wicked where because you've done it so many times, slight things can disturb you, you know, like can throw you off and which is just interesting um so one has to stay very 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 focused and, but and that and i i made already mention of this and i really do believe this because people can say well don't you get tired of it don't you get tired of doing it you know three years of wicked now it's been almost three years it'll be you know whatever two and a half plus years of total fiddler on the roof in yiddish but the truth is the the new audience every night keeps it fresh for you because and i you have to consciously remind yourself they they may have they they're not coming back for the hundredth time it you're you're serving it up new and so fresh and they've not heard it and they're they've not engaged with it and so that keeps me honest and true about let me go back to zero and tell the story again for the first time it is always, I mean, people have asked me this a great deal, and I, I want to start knocking wood on it because a role like Tevya and a musical like Fiddler on the Roof and Wicked, I mean, they're both perfect musicals in a way. Great entertainment with great meaningful message. I I could never get tired of either of them. You know, like the, there may be different musicals or different projects that you would be like yeah i'm ready to hang up my shoes you know at this point i'm i i just hope that you know tevya can only be so old and i know certain tevyas went on into theater Bakel, i think famously played tevya in his 80s and um that while that does sound too old um i can understand the appeal of 
staying with Tevye for as long as possible because it's it's a role unlike any other for me close but similar to the great Shakespearean roles I just want to make this final Shakespearean connection there are roles in Shakespeare where we we can sense that his imagination caught fire with the character for instance Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet just became such a dazzling character for him um, that 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 you ran the risk he ran the risk of overturning the drama by having such a showy character Shylock is another character for Shakespeare that seemed to almost derail the play because he gave that character such complexity and Sholem Aleichem with Tevye is this is to me a similar thing which is he found this character and he kept returning to Tevye throughout his writing career years would pass and he would come back to Tevye and his imagination he obviously poured so much of his life and his imagination into this character that I can't imagine um, getting tired of 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 embodying that life, life spirit, life, the 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 joy of life, and then the depths of what it is to experience life on all its levels. That to me is what Tevi is, and um, I I that keeps it so vital and fresh for me. Well, I would love to ask a show I've always been curious to ask someone about is this revival of Pal Joey that you did at the roundabout. And what was and what was it like to work with Joe Mantello on that? And well, Joe, I had worked with Joe on the when I did Wicked, that is to say, my first foray into Wicked was the sit-down production in Chicago. And so he he did direct us, as opposed to if you go into the Broadway. Or, or even maybe the national tour, um, you're going to work po- probably more with an associate, and certainly now, these many years later, than with Joe. Joe. And um, But thankfully, I got to work on Dr. Dilliman with him uh, on Wicked. So, um, and he is another actor, director, you know, so he knows very well the actor's plight from his own experience. So similar to working with Joel Gray, there's a certain understanding on working with something with Joe. Um, in terms of pal Joey, um, you know, um, the role of Ernst is is not a vital role to the story, but um, but I, I very much enjoyed it. I mean, uh, again, and working with Stalker Channing, being in a room with Stalker Channing um, was was a delight. And and obviously, Pal Joey has great songs. It's a different type of musical. It is a different type of musical than than say Fiddler or Wicked, in terms of. I mean, I suppose the Stalker Channing character is in some ways a very interesting character. And then the only, I mean, the only thing I really remember from it, to be quite honest, is that there was late minute cast changes, and so. Uh-huh. That was a little bit fraught and it's, that's never easy. And yet somebody gets a great opportunity and yet somebody is also released from their duties. And so it can be a little bit of a seismic shift for everybody. Um, 
it was a great experience. I loved working on it. I loved working with Joe, loved working with the choreographer. I mean, again, I didn't do a lot of dancing, but Graziella Danielle is phenomenal in what she does. And working um, with the company of actors was fantastic. Um, that's all I can really say about it. And I'm not sure if you would want to answer this question, but has there uh, has there been a role that you've turned down or something like that? Or, um, well, I, I don't mind answering this question. Um, I was, I've worked, I've, I've done many readings and workshops with Rebecca Teichman and and she also loves Shakespeare um as as much as she loves her theater that she does that's not Shakespeare so we we have a great sympathetic relationship and I was asked to audition for Indecent and I read the play Indecent and you know sometimes uh sometimes you read too quickly. I, I just, I couldn't quite get it on the page. What, because it was the same, you know, if you saw Indecent, there's the same scene that's played over and over again. It, and I just couldn't quite get what Indecent was on the page. And so she asked me if I would come in to meet with her about playing in it. And, and at that time it was going to go to, California and be at New Haven and it just sounded like a lot of travel and so you know so I said no I turned down meeting with her about indecent and then of course I saw it on Broadway and it blew me away and of course I I didn't know what it was I didn't know and maybe sometimes you can't know. And so you have to sort of say, hey, if you think so, I'll go with you or I'll do. But um, it's not that I regret that decision, but but it I would have now retrospectively seeing what she did with that script and what that show really is, um, I would have been interested. And 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 it's just a, a cautionary tale for me that I um See, I mean, but that's that is also the name of the game for the actor. It's like, well, you got to really have the vision of what it might be, what it might be for you, or what it could be. Um, but I couldn't quite see that on the page with indecent, and um, yeah, so that's that's an example of maybe I would rethink it or if I, if I had it to do over. Right, and. I would also love to ask about the experience of going right into Fiddler and in Yiddish from having done Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway as Laser Wolf and what it was oh, like, yeah. what you sort of took from that production. And Well, I mean, I mean, and I had another experience, Charles, I don't know, is that I most recently played Tevye in English at the Lyric Opera of Chicago and then started the revival rehearsal a week later in Yiddish, um, which which had its own unique challenges i mean i'll what i'll say about the danny burstein fiddler and the bart share fiddler is that and and having played laser wolf in that is that bart gave incredible thought to the character of laser wolf uh, in a very delightful way and meaningful way and so i i really loved how he conceived laser you know um 
And not that I'm playing laser now, but the laser Tevya relationship is a very interesting one. And we've probed it very deeply in the Yiddish for what it what it is and what it can be. And um I I, I the thing the thing I know about laser now is that I do think he loves Seitel, and I do think um it's it's interesting and useful if if laser's not too much of a a boor. It, because if it's so obvious that he's he's completely wrong for Zeitel, then it makes Tevya seem a little dim. Like, why would he even agree to this marriage? And it is true that with the help of alcohol in the moment, he sees only positives about the match. Um, but I, I, I like that. I mean, it's the, the last scene between Tevye and Laser when when Laser's leaving for Chicago is actually the scene that I feel is is so interesting and important is that they say goodbye and they actually make amends uh, in a way. And that's that to me is beautiful and interesting. And in both productions, I think our Yiddish one, we 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 facilitate that. And certainly in the Bart Share where laser leaves a sum of money for Tevye in the cart as he's leaving surreptitiously leaves this money um you know is a is a beautiful completion of their relationship um and so how did the Yiddish production first come about for you and yeah um well so they announced it they announced the folks being announced that they were doing the Yiddish fiddler directed by Joel Gray on Facebook and and they were very savvy to do that you know because they were able to throw their net very far on on social media in terms of trying to attract attention and um, I don't usually ever, 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 it's a recipe for disaster for me to like pursue roles, you know, hey, could I be seen for that? And then they're like, no, they don't want to see you for that. You know, it's like, ah, oh. you know, so I, I'm much more comfortable in my career just having my agent say, this has come about, what do you think? As opposed to say, hey, try and get this, try and get this. But I did call my agent after I saw that they were doing the Yiddish Fiddler. I had wanted all my life since I played Tevye at 17 and 21, I I've been wanting to play Tevye as an adult in my, I just was something I wanted to do. And so I thought, well, this is Joel Gray and this is Yiddish, but, but it's Tevye. So I said to my agent, Hey, can you find out if they're seeing, still seeing for Tevye? And the short story is that they were. And so I went in and I met with Joel and I met with the people and you had to audition in Yiddish and they gave you, you know, they had sound files for you to listen to. And it was scary on the audition material. It sort of was sobering. They said, do yourself a favor, do us a favor, listen to the tapes. So so I knew they weren't joking. You know, it's not like you're going to come in and wing the Yiddish. Right. And so... And in that regard, I, I, I like a challenge like that. That to me is an interesting challenge. So I, um, I threw my hat in the ring and, and thankfully it, it, it came my way, you know, but, but, uh, and when I, when I got cast, you know, the joke is, is that I thought, well, it's in Yiddish, but it's Fiddler, and it's only for six weeks. And then what was meant to be just six weeks 
ended up being almost two years uh, before we closed um, and then pandemic. And then now we're reviving. So um, it's been, it really has been such a wonderful ride. And in some ways, I think it was bashert. It was meant to be that in some ways, all my life has been leading me towards this Yiddish fiddler in terms of growing up Jewish in a small Texas town and um, having Fiddler on the Roof on my radar since the time I was 11, say. And um, in some way, and in, it just feels like a culmination and a, a synthesis of all that um, that is meaningful to me in my life. So it's it's been a delight. And, you know, um, I know it's not going to go on forever. And I know this revival is a limited run. And so I urge people to come and see it while you can, because there's no guarantee it's going to stay around. And I know that it, if there ever were a show that would be sure to, to tour, would be a sure set is, is something in Yiddish because you've got Yiddish all over the world. And I know that's something that everybody would be hopeful to do is take this show and let it go to some different parts of the world, as well as the country. Um, and and at, at this time, with anti-Semitism raising its ugly head and with all that's going on globally in, in Ukraine and other places, I mean, it's so clear to us that Shalom Aleichem's landscape for Fiddler is Ukraine, because we talk about Kiev, we talk about Odessa, and those are towns very in the in the news right now today. So it's... It's great entertainment, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, but it also has a very, very vital message for today that has become, I think, even more needful today than it did in 1964 when it opened in some ways. Um, so I'm just delighted and honored to be in it and be able to help serve up the message. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate it. Be uh, well. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by composer Gary William Friedman. Gary William Friedman composed the Broadway shows The Me Nobody Knows and Platinum. And he also added music to the plays The Survivor and The Sign in Sydney Brewstein's Window for their Broadway productions. His other musicals include Laugh a Little, Cry a Little, Taking My Turn, which aired on TV, and Bring in the Morning. He is also the author of Love, Linda, which starred his wife, Stevie Holland. And on TV, he worked as the composer for the hit children's series The Electric Company. On January 30th, he'll be at 54 Below presenting a concert of a revised version of Platinum titled Platinum Dreams. You won't want to miss that concert or this episode, so make sure to tune back in and thanks for listening.